0: You have heard of the Manning cast? Well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo cast. The Gallo cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Nick and Geo Gallo talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the co-CEOs, Ethico, fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy The Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award winning Compliance Podcast Network. Everyone, well, this is Tom Fox. Football Seasons is back, and so is The Gallo Cast. Welcoming, of course, Nick Gallo and Geo Gallo, both from Ethico. Gentlemen, Welcome to the fall 2023 season
1: of the GalloCast. Glad to be here, Tom. Highlight of my month for sure.
2: So we've got... Yeah, always uh, the best thing that have got going on is hanging out with Tom Fox.
0: Hey, I'm hip to that. We've got some great stories to talk about and one that Gio has really used and will use as part of his CEO status and that workers need to see more pain. <laughs> So
2: that's that's actually the tagline for me on Slack. On my internal Slack, it just says that next to my name. Yeah, get
1: back to work. You deserve what you got. (laughs) One time, many moons ago
0: on Saturday Night Live, Mr. T was guesting. It was back when Eddie Murray was on it and he had Eddie's Neighborhood. And Mr. T came on and said, today's lesson, pain. So that's always stuck with me. But we had one of the most amazing Videoed performances of a CEO ever, where a CEO, a billionaire from Australia, said that workers need to see more pain, and the reason there is unemployment in the workplace and things aren't
1: getting done is shirking workers, lazy workers. La- workers. La- workers exist for executives' pleasure, That's egos, it. their bank accounts.
2: Yeah, yeah. He actually so, said this thing: is people need to recognize. That employees work for companies, not the other way around. In time by now, that like we view it the like literally verbally the exact opposite of that.
0: I work for myself, and other than having a boss for a jerk, it's a good gig. He's a jerk. And (laughs) here's what I wanted to ask you guys not whether he's right or wrong, but something a little bit different, which is you guys both came out of private equity, which I perceive to be a hard working, hard charging environment with some pretty dynamic egos. I came out of the law firm world, and that would certainly be a fair characterization of the law firm. And particularly as a associate or non-partner, you were expected to put in lots and lots of hours. I got dressed down in more ways than I could think of. Now that was a little bit different time, but U F few F-bombs are still thrown in the law firm world. Is, are we at a place where the things that you and I grew up with professionally are gone? My perception is there still exists, of course. There's the famous Goldman Sachs, PowerPoint, etc. But sometimes you get yelled at in the workplace, and sometimes it's actually can help you. And some of the people who were the most difficult on me taught me the biggest lessons that I've used literally for now forty years as a lawyer. And I assume you guys had some of those similar experiences.
1: Oh man, I had a, yeah, I had them from my brother. Yeah, I was say, your little <laughs> brother. From your baby <laughs> brother? <laughs> Ooh, now we know. Yeah. I always man. thought it was the
0: other way around.
2: Now, Big brother ruling. Oh, it right? goes both ways. Both ways. Yeah.
0: Okay. What
2: about the way you do um, Yeah, so like them? on that, I listen, it has changed. I worked in banking. I worked at Goldman and it seems every year or so a major bank is coming out and saying, we're really going to focus on the, at, the analyst quality of life and says, hey, there's a new rule going around. No one's allowed to throw a book more than 200 pages at an analyst after midnight. So let's cut some of this stuff out. But like that stuff has been moving as it is. My like one view that I have on it is like, it might be fine as long as it's like part of the agreement, right? I don't think anybody goes to boot camp for army and is like, why is this guy being so mean? You know, that a drill sergeant is going to be telling you to do some pushups and that's part of the agreement. And you go into it and you say, all right, I'm going to go and they're going to make me tough or whatever it is. So in some senses, if that's, I, I'd have to look it up, but I think Someone put it, I think it was maybe a law firm or something. They put it in their job description of, they're just like, you're going to work a lot of hours and you shouldn't complain about it. And this is for you to get a bunch of experience and we expect you to do perfect work and check it and all of that. And some people are like, Hey, that's so inappropriate. And I tend to think like, if you're upfront about it and people, someone's like, yeah, like I knew when I went into banking that I'd be working a lot of hours and have to do a bunch of menial stuff and I was down for it. And I only complained about it, you know, after midnight. <laughs>
1: Yeah. When your day was getting started, (laughs) nobody worked for, or nobody, I don't think to that point. Um, I mean, if you talk about guys who played for Bobby Knight, he was famously, you know, aggressive as a coach yelling at guys and so forth. And there are some folks that just didn't work for, and they didn't like his coaching style and they would go to different teams and so forth. But those guys who stuck it out with him, they all talk about how they would walk through walls for him. And to your point, it was very constructive for certain people. I think, to to what Gio said, it comes down to the contract that's in place or the expectations that are in place. And is there that type of violation? I don't, if you work at an accounting firm as an auditor, you're going to work a lot during audit season. That's just the name of the game, or you're going to work a ton during tax season. That's just the name of the game. And I think people, again, get into that knowing that, but they are willing to go through that pain for the skill set that they build or for the the doors that opens for them or the experiences that affords them and stuff like that. I think when companies, and again, we talk about this a lot, a company's deed should follow its word. And so when you're touting something that, Hey, this is casual workplace, this is a European style work environment, or we have banking hours here and there's this really like flowery language in the job post. And then you get in there and you're expected to work 80 hours a week. And there's none of those other things, then I think that's where organizations get in trouble. But again, I think it's about knowing who you are as a company and being clear with what that experience is gonna look like, at least to the extent possible. We try to be clear about what someone is getting when they come on board with us. We're fast growing startup vibe type of a company. And for somebody coming from a massive organization where everything is dialed in and you can just do one thing. And we tell people, if you're looking for a job where there's the laminated directions, the wall of how to make the Big Mac, this is not it here because we're growing fast and we're, we're doubling every year and a half and stuff like that. So that's a different environment. You know what I'm saying? So I just think it comes down to like expectations management and you can never get it totally right. But you can at least be erring on the side of transparency and like self-awareness as an organization as to, and I think that helps to avoid these, these like expectation shortfalls, which is really what this comes down to.
0: So I've been writing and thinking a lot about speak up in corporate culture. When you guys were in the banking slash PE world, was your opinion valued if you came with a new angle, a new something? As a lawyer, I was expected to do what I was told, but I was also expected to think. And if I saw something that would I could at least raise that and it would be heard. Was that y'all's experience, even though you were working till midnight?
1: So for we were raised by parents that were always telling us to speak up. Always. We we were taught to think. We were taught dinner table at our house was like Cross-examination time. So you had to be able to like <laughs> debate with dad and support your position. And we were told to voice our opinion and our concerns. And that that went up and down over time, like correlated to my confidence in a role. Like in my first job, I was heads down for a while until I understood the lay of the land and so forth. But when I was in private equity, I did speak up and that got me in trouble. Like to a fault. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that got me in trouble a couple of times where we were doing this one investment or we were looking at this one investment and I thought it made no sense at all. And I was putting together the the deck for investment committee and my boss, the managing director was really hot on this deal. And my commentary and the deck that I put together was inarguably objective, but it was, you can write an objective thing. That's clearly slanted one, one way. And I was outspoken against this deal. And I got dressed down (laughs) after that presentation because I went off script or I went off what he wanted me to say. But I think overall the environment that I came from, it was encouraged. It was large aside from a couple of instances like that where there was like a clear agenda, there there was a drive for it to be an idea of meritocracy and everybody wanted to hear everybody's opinion to try to get to that right answer. What was it like for you, Gio? I don't know what Goldman is, you know what I'm saying? That is a black box to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, like a Nick is doing an objective answer tilted by his own thing. It's like when you take the selfie, like just facing your chin and up the nose. It's like, it's a picture. That's what you actually look like. (laughs) From that angle. From that angle. angle, It's a real picture. Yeah, I think generally there were like intellectually curious cultures of devil's advocacy. I think part of what coming into those roles and being Someone junior with two months of experience working with someone with 20 years of experience was just like understanding where to slot that in. Like walking into the client meeting saying, hey, I don't think we thought about this important thing is not the right time to bring that up. Like you should have brought that up when you were doing the prep. I think generally I worked with people who were open to hear the opinion. And when I started out, a lot of it was wrong. It was like, why don't we do this? And they're like, you don't know how these things work. But also that was part of the learning, right? That was part of the interaction. And I think in some ways that's harder to mock and fill that gap in a virtual culture because it was like after the call, I would just be like sitting around talking. And that's usually when the team's meeting is off. But yeah, I was generally in an environment where people, one of the worst bosses I ever have, maybe this shows you how privileged I am. One of the worst bosses I ever have told me this thing you're hired for your discretion. So you need to be thinking and bringing things up that matter and telling us what's going on. And then he threw the book at me.
0: I grew up in a family where children were told you will speak when spoken to. Very military. Let's move on to our next topic which is of course one of our favorite CEOs behaving badly. So I've got three different CEOs. One was the CEO from British Petroleum or BP who had multiple affairs with people I don't know of which gender within his organization. And we had a second who a CEO who over Labor Day allegedly groped a woman at a company party, and within a week, he had resigned to pursue other opportunities. And then we have Luis Rabiales, the former head now of the Spanish Football Federation, who planted a big old wet kiss on the team star as after they won the World Cup in England. I'd like to start with the one BP, because in this one, apparently the CEO had had a known previous affair with someone in the organization and he was investigated and cleared for it. And then the board opened a second investigation. Apparently there were others and he fessed up. I didn't tell you the truth in the first investigation. I've had multiple affairs and how do you, how important is that investigative process and how does a board if a CEO is going to lie to a board, that would seem to be a hugely important matter in and of itself. So, how do you evaluate the way a CEO would treat a board in that situation? As both of you are co-CEOs,
2: <laughs> I think some people. I'm just, just reeling kind of, from this. You you're know. saying you're supposed to be honest with the board. <laughs> you're supposed to be selectively honest ahead, with then. the board. I'm. <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> I, yeah, like definitely
1: objective with a slant. A slanted objective response. Yeah, of course. I think, I think at some level it's a character issue. I was talking to a guy, a friend of mine who is at a private equity fund, and they do a ton of background checks on folks before they get involved with them, either from an investment perspective or even backing them as a CEO, bringing them in to run a company. And he's, like, if I see anything in there, it's one and done for me. I'm not willing to roll the dice on a guy who's been a bad actor, fraud, whatever, in the past. It's just not worth it. Very few people are true masters of the universe where they have so you, such like the company could only be successful if this one individual is running it. I think that's rare if at, if it exists at all. And so I think those kind of character, my wife always says people will tell you exactly who they are if you're listening close enough and you're watching close enough. And I think that's really good advice. I don't know. What do you, what would you say, Gio?
2: Yeah, I I think. Go ahead, G. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. So I think. I I think the challenge is how do you manage around it? Should we start doing e-learning for all CEOs about groping and affairs? Is that really going to, I think that at that level of interaction and power and access, I, I think in a lot of ways you need to deal with this more culturally, right? This is the opposite of password protection and something that's super objective and easy to track, you need to make sure that your board has a sense That we need a zero tolerance policy on this, not just as a policy, but we need to be like looking for character and solving around it because obviously there's a lot of room for a CEO to lie to the board. And the board has a lot of like implicit momentum to say, okay, I hope that's right. I think if this, can we wrap up the investigation? I'd really like rather not be walking through the muck here. And I think that it's duty of the board and CEO that creates a culture among the executives even if he or she moves on and help to really push for something that is g- going to stand up to the net distance with you know so- someone in that role to like actually be held accountable for it.
1: Yeah, and that a kind of inherent moral hazard, which is really what that is, is a pretty interesting uh, thing to call out because anything in the gray, I mean, you can imagine that the board's incentive is to maintain the status quo, is to not mess up their options. You know what I'm saying? It's gonna be idiosyncratic to the culture of the board or the value hierarchy of the individuals on that board, the extent to which they're willing to prioritize doing what's right versus clearly doing what's right versus pulling the plug on somebody who seems like they might have done something wrong. And there's this pandemic of short-term ism in most organizations where you gotta hit your quarterly numbers and so forth. And so that creates an environment or a incentive circumstance that allows people to compromise as you were talking about that. Also, I think it's important to underscore, like, at least from like a risk-based approach, CEOs in general, my board doesn't listen to this. so I can say this CEOs in general are like more prone to this stuff. I think people like if you're running a massive organization, the first thing to go is your connectedness to other people and what the average worker's plight is, or you start to believe, and there's hundreds of cases of this or hundreds of examples of this, you start to believe that you are better than people and that the rules don't apply to you and that you are the smartest person in the room and so forth. And so those sort of internal circumstances or those internal beliefs can lead to a lot of risk-taking behavior by people in power. You see it just over and over again. I can do this because I have a lot of money or I can do this because everybody answers to me and I'm surrounded by yes-men. Those kinds of environments End up sinking down into that, like type one. Keneman talks about the type one and type two thinking, or system one and system two thinking. It does start to affect that that instinctual response to things, and you guys start to think that like rules don't apply for them or, or don't apply to them. And so the confluence of those things, both on the board side and on the CEO behavioral side, lead to a lot of opportunity for malfeasance or bad acting or whatever you want to call it.
0: Let me turn to Luis Rubiales. And as I mentioned, he was the now former head of the Spanish Soccer Federation. And here I'd like to focus on the reputational damage his action did to Spanish women's soccer. And use that as a springboard to ask you guys, is, in your opinion, the reputational damage from having any sort of legal violation or violation of moral hazard that you just talked about, Dick, uh, can that be as big or even a bigger cost to a company than the dollars spent on an investigation fine and penalty?
1: Oh, I think it's, I think it's, I think that's where the real cost is. Yeah. I think that's a bigger cost. It's harder to quantify. So sometimes it just doesn't get considered in the equation, but that reputational piece is wildly, wildly critical and very costly because you don't know how long that is going to be a scarlet letter on the organization. You know what I'm saying? That's a brand issue. Companies spend millions of dollars, billions of dollars to maintain their brand and put the right marketing in place and do these do these big sort of public moves, ESG, hiring the right people, being leaders in initiatives that matter to the marketplace that and it can all crumble so quickly. And it's an organization, I've been fascinated with this concept of like anti-fragility. This came from that Nassim Taleb book from several years ago, where some systems, if you apply stress to them, they break down. Most technology is fragile, right? You shake a, you drop a computer, it breaks. The human body is something that's anti-fragile. And that's something that when you walk barefoot, your feet are going to grow calluses, right? You put stress on that anti-fragile system and it becomes stronger. An organization is an extremely complex system that is extremely fragile and the brand itself, because it's so ethereal is extremely fragile. And just like an individual's reputation can be ruined overnight. Same can go for an organization. It just has such higher stakes.
0: First of all, shout out to Nick for the Nathaniel Hawthorne reference of everyone's second favorite high school book, The <laughs> Scarlet Letter. But the, I heard one person commentator explain to me the reason, in his opinion, it costs so much is it costs off the top line. It was sales you would never get again. Exactly. Now, perhaps could make a comeback, but the reality was you lost sales for X period of time and that was gone forever. And you could not get that time period back, even if you were able to return to customers. So in many ways, he agreed with what you said, that it it is the greater cost. And I guess the other thing in certainly today's world of social media, but also of a changing generation, now even from you guys to a different, my daughter's twenty six and in the workforce. She has very different values and is willing to exercise those values with not only who she does business with as a consumer, but who she works for. I think that's going to only become more and more important. Let me turn to, we talked about the potential rebuild of Ukraine as uh, the construction opportunity of the century, or at least the biggest one since World War II. But now it turns out we have a potential trillion-barrel oil field found off Namibia. It's in the Atlantic Ocean. Namibia is not as prone to the perception of corruption as some other West African countries, at least right now. But you have a one of the major offshore oil field finds. How should companies begin to come, prepare for this? Can they use any of the topics we touched on with Ukraine, or would you suggest that they do a different calculus?
1: I think this resource curse that a lot of these countries fall victim to is very real. And I think maybe this is the theme here, but it all just comes back down to values. There's a rare opportunity here, I think, to break this pattern of resource curse, but they have to be they have to lean into transparency and like equitable distribution of these benefits to workers in order to to do that. If there's not a, if there's not explicit anti-corruption measures, tangible ones in place, then de facto it will at least from the outside people are going to assume the status quo is going to be is going to be maintained. And from the outside there's been so many instances of this resource curse, you know what i'm saying, that lead to massive inequalities in like strip mining for lack of a better term of the countries that have these these resources. I just think there's a threat that they don't do it and they don't do anything different, but there's a huge opportunity to put tangible things in place that can change the narrative. You know what I
2: mean? Yeah, I think there's something going on here where there's some self-interest for the company to make sure that we do good diligence and make sure we audit our supply chain and make sure we protect our company so we don't get in trouble for something. But also in such a new and potentially transformative finding within this country, I think it's also important for leaders in compliance or compliance to advocate to the board or to just drive a culture that considers the the local implications of these decisions. Right. And how can planning around ethically sourcing labor and social responsibility and community engagement and like how can how can you be part of something that is not just extracting resources but doing something that's also in your self-interest if you have a long enough time horizon of helping make sure that the people there are part of the benefit that comes from this instead of just going and making some money for your company and i tend to think that in compliance and ethics we might be the team most fit to bring those conversations up to the front and say, hey, we should really do this ethically because there's probably a way for us to do it ethically and still win and perform well. And I think that it's important for that to be incorporated into your program more than just the self-protection compliance 1.0 stance.
0: Let me turn to a favored topic of the Gallo cast, Elon Musk. And in part of the permanent Elon Musk winged to the Securities and Exchange Commission. They are now (laughs) investigating him for corporate perks. The most alleged corporate perk of all is apparently, or it's alleged, company Tesla built him a house. And once again, I would like to maybe tie this to what we talked about with the role of of the board and oversight over a CEO or other co-CEOs And how do you guys see the board's role as oversight just to make sure everything's run on the straight and narrow as well?
1: This Tesla thing is a tough one because I'm not trying to speak out of both sides of my mouth here, but like when people invest in Tesla, it's like they're investing in Elon Musk. Like he's maybe less transferable because he's such a figurehead and he's such this, this like kind of, of unicorn. And Think about how much Tesla, look at Tesla's stock price since it came out. It's wildly, it's absolutely wild. And so again, there's moral hazard built into this. There is an inherent propensity, I think, human nature to bend the rules and say, oh, that's okay. Or again, if it's if it's on the line, they're going to say that's inbounds versus out of bounds. I just think from a human perspective, the power dynamics in this case are extremely interesting with respect to Musk, who's running the company. And the board who is supposedly, or who supposedly has this fiduciary duty on behalf of investors to provide governance and oversight of this public company. Twitter is, some people could argue that like Twitter is different because he owns it and he he doesn't own it all, of course, but like he owns it and it's private. But I'm just saying, I doubt that he's wearing different hats or different pants. I'm saying the way that he's running that is probably the same way that he's running everything because that's probably just how he is. I'm saying, I don't know the guy. But I'm, I just don't think that these two companies or the way that he interacts with these two companies is going to be materially different. And so he's the guy who just does what he wants, at least that's my impression again from reading articles and never having met him. Um, I don't think the fiduciary duty of a board changes depending on whether it's private or public or whether it's run by Elon Musk or it's run by Nick and Gio. It's the same. It's the same mandate across the board, you know what I'm saying? I don't know, it's it's an an interesting thing because the CFO raised some concerns about this issue and there's been a lot of scrutiny due to the overlap between these different holdings, SpaceX, Tesla, Twitter, whatever. So it's just like a bit of a messy situation that again, where there is this guy who's a linchpin, it leads to at least the the chance of this kind of stuff happening.
2: Let me change. I think this seems like something that's pretty... It seems like something that's pretty common in compliance where we want people to bring stuff up, right? speak up, ask about it, let's clarify it, and then we have a record of this thing being approved, right? That happens in, can I do this pay or ask about this gift and entertainment policy or something like that? And it seems like there was either a breakdown or kind of a calculated risk here where something was brought up and like someone knew about this and said, okay, yeah, that's fine. And then it got to the SEC and they didn't like it. So the board might've said, hey, let's just do it. We got to keep him happy and we'll see if we get in trouble. Or maybe nobody advised them that the SEC might not like that. But to me, this seems, yes, it's more complex and it's about a CEO and it's higher level and stuff like that. But this is the kind of stuff that compliance teams are trying to do all the time, bring us to the table and help us get involved so that we can make sure that whatever you're trying to do can actually be done decently and cleanly and is not going to lead to a problem. And it seems like at some point there was some breakdown in that ask, clarify, authorize, and let's all be on the same page with what like we are allowed to do and what we should do. Look,
1: if me and Gio were operating multiple businesses, I would expect our board to have an eye toward potential conflicts of interest, whether those are effort conflicts of interest or utilizing ethical people or resources for the benefit of other holdings that we're a part of. Those are natural questions to ask in that kind of a scenario. And we're obviously very small relative to Tesla and SpaceX and so forth. And I just think the fact that there weren't sort of additional controls in place or hard questions about potential conflicts of interest speaks to what I was talking about earlier the, the moral hazard inherent to this thing to the extent that a boards there's that what's that quote from the jungle it's like something like good luck trying to get someone to to understand something that goes against their best interest if they make money from that thing i don't know that's a butchering of it but it's that kind of a concept it's why am i going to kill the golden goose or what if i have stock options as a board member regardless of my fiduciary duty They're just not going to push forward. And I'm not suggesting that perhaps boards should be fully independent with no sort of equity exposure. It might be hard to get good folks on the board, but it's just, it should be top of mind from a governance uh, standpoint or from a cultural perspective, at least on that board, that these kinds of dynamics can lead to bad outcomes and be in malfeasance. We have to have an eye. If Look, if we're at least going to appear to be like doing our fiduciary duty as board members, we have to at least address those things and at least be able to point to something tangible. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of negligence, you know what I'm saying?
0: Let me change to another story where we had an enforcement action this week against the uh, firm CBRE, who had language in non-disclosure and separation agreements which prevented people or so said they couldn't go to regulators. To report legal violations or other concerns. And this is called there was an, one of these clauses was not used to prevent someone would go from going. It's something called a pretaliation case. There was no retaliation, but there was a contractual clause which prevented people from reporting to the government. This has been well known since 2016. The SEC has told us a specific language that you need. You can have an NDA, you can have a a clause, but you can't prevent people from going to the government and whistleblowing and reporting. Um, You guys have a hotline company. Is this something you guys are still seeing in the workplace? Do you have to counsel people? Sorry, that's illegal. You can't do that?
2: Apparently, maybe someone does. It's, It's not something that people come to us and say, hey, we're thinking about telling people that they can't report something. What do you guys think? They're probably not inclined to ask us that. To a certain extent, this is what this whole industry is, right? Like, this to me, this industry of ethics and compliance is driven by two things people don't know what they're supposed to do, and people are going to do what they can to get what they want. And in this case, they went after it. I'd love to hear who like rubber stamped that or who said, Yeah, sure, let's have a couple thousand people sign that. But they didn't ask me.
1: This in that article, I found it interesting that Monolith had required employees to forfeit whistleblower awards in severance agreements in 2020 and 2022. That's wild. Talk about an anti-speak-up culture. It's just, it's crazy. But I'm sure if you went to their website, they would have a really nice values page and have a, I I'm. I would bet something like respect and integrity is on those values. And again, it just speaks to this thing that you were talking about your daughter earlier, Tom, and that this generation cares about this stuff and they're willing to vote with their feet and they're willing to take actions they're willing to they truly prioritize organizations that have a highly ethical culture that just sends a massive message it's easy to greenwash your way or ethics wash your way through a values page but the proof is in the experience that employees have and think of how many employees that are working at monolith or working at cbre who they don't they don't know this verbiage and severance agreements, like the average line employee probably is never going to see a severance agreement like that. But when something like this, going back to the, the that soccer the brand. E- example from before, as that comes out, that not just damages the, the brand in the marketplace, I think the bigger damage and the the more costly damage is the damage that's done to the employee base. We spend a lot of time talking about brand from an external perspective and like how the market looks at that. But that brand is really a membrane. And this outer membrane is just one aspect of it. The inner membrane is the employer brand. And that determines what the employee experience is. And this is a silent killer. So I get that it doesn't get so much attention. But a company, clients are never going to love a company unless it's full of people working at that company who love that company first. And it's hard to love a company that grates against your id. You know what I'm saying? That grates against what you think is just and what you think is true and that silent killer i'm not saying all those people are going to read this about cbre or that other company whatever they were called monolith or something that they're going to read that and they're going to leave the organization but i would say that whatever deadweight loss exists in the supply and demand of labor within that organization will absolutely increase on the margin people who are people are going to be more jaded on the margin engagement is going to go down on the margin employee turnover is going to be a little bit higher than it otherwise would be. And that, while difficult to quantify, is where I think the bottom line really starts to get impacted. Because those sales you miss, yeah, those are one time and so forth. A damage, a reputational damage that resonates deeply and negatively with the employee base, that can keep costing you for a long time. And that's what I think a lot of organizations end up missing. And we keep, we've been doing more and more of these like ROI coaching sessions with clients and folks in this industry. And just, it just keeps resonating. It's this piece of the puzzle is such a big one. And it's shocking to me how many people at the executive level still don't see this connection between the external and the internal brand and how influenced the employee engagement is by a deviation between deed and word or a gap between the aspirational and the actual culture. It's, it's something that, that you can absolutely affect. And if you're not trying to affect it, it's just going to continue to drift and continue to create more deadweight loss in the organization.
0: Our next story comes to us from north of the border in Canada, where a company called SNC Lavalin, who was can, had Canada's largest corruption enforcement action, is going to change its name to allegedly turn the page. Where do you see changing the name as helping or not a company overcome a corrupt past? Could it be a part of an overall cultural change? Can it supplant a culture change? Where do you guys shake out on that?
1: I think it, as Gio always says, Geo, I'm stealing your answer probably. As Geo always says, it's going to come down to execution and what is it really? If you're just, if you have a dilapidated house and you just put some new linoleum down and paint the walls and you're not actually remodeling the house, that's still going to be a crappy house. It's just going to have some linoleum floors. But if it's part of a reinvention of the organization and there's an authentic push by leadership to change the culture of the organization and build a culture of integrity, then it can work. And that can serve as a a mile marker or as a pivot point or as a catalyst for starting a new chapter in the company. What do you think, Gio? Gio?
2: yeah, I think it's it absolutely can be valid. I think that as you go into it, you need to realize that, if not everybody, a significant portion of the people who are paying attention to it are probably going to be skeptical of the of the authenticity of it. This, I think, is more of something that you do in the middle of a transformation, not as our first act. Under to better culture is to change our name. So everyone forgets about what we did before. That's not the way to do it. You got to know that people are going to be questioning whether like you're just trying to hide your past to what you were talking about. Nick, I totally agree. If you're authentic, if you're authentically changing things, you're saying, Hey, we're doing all of these concrete things and we're doing all of these cultural things. And we, we want to reinforce the message that we've already been sending that we're really serious about this, about we're setting a vision in our sights on a new why, and a new future for the organization, and that's also going to be represented in a name and a logo, then I think it can add momentum to it. But I think that there's a risk that if there's not a lot of supporting evidence and momentum already going in that direction, then it probably could have a negative impact on your perception and your brand for anyone that's paying attention.
1: Yeah. Anybody who has a cynical bone in their body is going to say, this is just, see, they're just trying to change their name and think that they're just going to trick the marketplace. So I think you're starting in a hole. You're starting in a hole and you have to prove it with your actions and with what you prioritize and the marginal decisions you make, the the trade offs you make to, to prove it. It's not going to happen overnight. But it is effectable. All of this stuff is effectable. You can change your reputation. You can you can fix these things. You can change your culture. You, you can improve these things. But it just takes consistent effort and authentic execution.
0: Gents, I want to end by asking you both about SCE's annual conference this year, the CEI conference. Excuse me, Compliance and Ethics Institute what are you hoping to achieve? What have you heard so far? And will Ethico
1: be there in all all its glory? Yeah, we'll be there in all of its glory, hopefully in all of our glory. Yeah, we got a nice booth this year. We try to make our booth a no pitch zone where you're not getting harassed to try to get scans, but you can come by, you can pick up a book. We have some games this year. We're going to be doing on the fly interviews with people to hear what their takeaways are, stuff like that. I'm really looking forward to it, getting to see some friends and getting to see, it's always such a good time. I always walk away reinvigorated, super excited about our industry. I just feel like we're hitting this really cool tipping point and the next 10 years in our industry is going to look way different than the last 10 years. And I would just always leave feeling like I learned something and reconnecting with folks. Mary Shirley's book came out. So we're doing a book launch party for her Tuesday night. Pretty excited for that. And I'm speaking on it in a session on privacy changes. What are you looking forward to, Gio?
2: I'm always looking forward to the people. That's to me, this is what it's about. Like we don't, we don't send our team there to try to be used car lot salespeople, trying to drag them into the booth. It's about connecting with people and seeing old friends, meeting new ones. I love hearing what people are learning about and just, it's always great to get out of the day-to-day that we're doing. And I think that we all walk away from that conference being a little bit more strategic, a little bit more excited about driving transformation and getting past just working through the task list and the inbox. And for me, that all comes down to the great people who show up there.
0: Guys, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. This has always been great. I'm glad the fall Gallo cast season is here. And I look forward to getting your report when we record in October.
1: Can't
2: wait. Yeah, maybe we're going to move on from football and we're going to have some football ethics challenges coming up. In (laughs) We have those every week. (laughs) All right. Thanks for having us, Tom. It's a blast, as always.
0: This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the GalloCast. I hope you'll join Nick and I in January, where we get back together for another edition. It's been a ton of fun bringing this podcast series to you it's uh really more than uh, fun than a barrel of monkeys recording it with these guys they're so great together and i hope you get a sense of uh, what they're like from this podcast if you'd like to see the video version of this check out my youtube channel the compliance podcast network under the podcast gallocast on youtube i hope you will have a very safe and joyous holiday season and new year we will look forward to visiting you with you in 2023. If you haven't done so, I would appreciate it if you could rate and review this podcast on uh, iTunes. It would greatly help our rankings and get out the word about the uh, GalloCast beyond the compliance community. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you in 2023.